Genesis 17, verse 1. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the God of the Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but you shall be Abraham. For I shall make you a father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you. And kings will come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations, an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. <laughs> That's just a good word, isn't it? And um, I've been having this um, experience the last... Hmm, it's been uh, the last few months. Uh, it sort of uh, it started with a uh, a word that somebody gave me, um, just about being a father to nations. And then um, I think it was uh, about a month ago or so, a friend of mine texted me. I said uh, he texted me a message. He goes, "Hey, I got this. Woke up this verse for you, and it was uh, Romans four uh, eighteen. I'll read you just this part. And hope against hope, he believed." speaking of Abraham, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which was spo- has been spoken, and so shall your descendants be. And so um, I've been ha- getting this word about being a father to nations. And then um, two nights ago we were at um, Capital Christian Center and we were doing a purity, a moral purity uh, conference, just a one-night thing, which is really powerful, by the way. They're, that's a, just a wonderful church, by the way. They're doing an amazing job there. Really cutting-edge stuff going on there. But uh, there was about seven or 800 uh, young people who came. And we were just doing a thing on sexual purity and the restoration of virginity and all this stuff. And one of the leaders just came up to me and he goes, I, I don't know what this means, but the Lord says that you're going from Abram to Abraham. And um, I'm like, oh, that's cool. And he said, yeah. He goes, um, you're moving from an exalted father to a father of a multitude. And as he's sharing that, I felt like the Lord was saying, said to me, like, that's not for you. That's for, I feel like that's for the body. That we're moving from being an exalted father to being a father of nations, to be a, a father of a multitude. And um, <clears throat> I think a few things are happening in my heart that I think that, that the first thing that has to happen in our lives is we have to be an exalted father. What I mean by that is that, Paul wrote to Timothy and talked about elders that until they can manage their own households, they couldn't manage the household of God. And I feel like the Lord is doing something in us. It's, it's really difficult to be a father to nations when you have an orphan spirit. And Bill spoke about the orphan spirit this morning, which was just such, on, you know, such in line with what, what I felt I was going to share today as far as um, as the Lord is making us a father to nations. And he's breaking that orphan spirit off of us. And he's causing us to be an exalted father. You know, when I, when I say exalted, I'm not talking about like arrogant or any of the other things it could mean. I mean that we're doing a great job at, at fathering our homes, and the Lord wants to release, release us. And when I say father too, I'm not talking about a gender, by the way. I'm talking about the role of fatherhood. That the Lord wants to release fathers and mothers into the nations. And that we, um, and, and we need to be moving from being an exalted father, exalted mother, if you will. In other words, with learning how to raise our own sons, our own daughters, 
God wants us to learn how to be fathers and mothers, how to move out of out from under that orphan spirit and um, and become a father and a mother, not just so that we can be uh, a great father to our our own families, but so that we can be a fulfillment to that prophetic declaration that the Lord made thousands of years ago to Abraham, and your descendants shall be fathers of nations. And I really feel like um, Danny and I, I think Danny shared this a couple times, but I really feel like uh, the real core issue of society, the real core struggle in, in every society is really traced back to fatherhood. We, uh, Danny and I and a few of our team, we met together with uh, our city officials. This was probably about a year ago, and there was probably about 40 or 50 of us in the room, and there was uh, several city officials. There were several people from the educational uh, realm, leaders in the educational realm, and several political leaders, um, some people from the police department, sheriff's department, and, and um, some of uh, people from the uh, the city officials there. And, and we were interacting for probably about three hours, and we were talking about what is the real core root of the struggle. Because how many of you understand that if you don't know if you don't understand the ecosystem, you create some symptomatic cures, and today's cures becomes tomorrow's problem. So we were talking a lot about ecosystems and, like, what actually is the root core struggle in our city? Could you trace it down to a few core problems? And as the city leaders began to interact, and all we were doing is kind of emceeing the meeting, and they were sharing, the educational people were sharing about the struggles in the school system, and the police were sharing about gang problems and juvenile issues and and the city, uh, we're, we're talking about the different issues in, in the city. And, and, and we, you know, we just we ended up in this long dialogue where um, every single person in that room that night, every single official said the real struggle in our area is not money. It's not all these other things. It's that we in fact, it was the, one of the guys from the from this uh, educational system. He said, the real struggle in our system is every single one of our students that is blowing out of school does not have a father. And then, the, and then some of the, the sheriff and the police officers began to interact with us that nearly every single violent crime is committed by somebody who's fatherless. And the, the list went on, and that stimulated the conversation. And when we left that meeting, the core issue, everybody, every single person, we didn't, we weren't, we were MC in the meeting, and we were not like leading it in a sense of teaching. Every single person in that room, and probably half those people didn't know the Lord, said that the real core issue of society is fatherlessness. And we walked out of there. Of course, Danny's the relational guy, so he was happy that was the struggle. <laughs> he was like, wow, oh, I always knew it. And so um, I think that, turn to um, Malachi 4. All the stuff we're sharing tonight is going to be pretty simple. Malachi 4, this is probably most, one of the most repeated uh, chapters, verses in the last probably 10 years. Behold, um, verse 5, chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great the coming of the great terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of their uh, children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. What happens when you remove fathers from a society is the land comes under a curse. 
And it's amazing to me that the core uh, prophetic, the core thrust of the prophetic movement is the restoration of fatherhood. And I think it's, um, I think it's not by any kind of chance that the Lord's put in my heart and several prophetic people to start movements where the restoration of family and father, we started this organization called Moral Revolution. I don't think it's by chance that the Lord is putting that in, in, in prophetic people's hearts that part of what they feel so strongly, you know, I, I feel like the Lord's put it in so deeply in my heart to work towards the restoration of family and society. I feel like that's my call. Like people are like, they want to do prophetic training and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, that's awesome as long as it actually has a purpose. And that purpose has to be the restoration of family and the, the, and the, and the ministry of reconciliation. I, I, I so feel like prophetic people that aren't ministering in the spirit of reconciliation are actually, actually missing the main purpose of prophetic ministry. That the Lord is not trying to prophesy over people as much as He is trying to restore the, the whole nature of fatherhood to society. And, and trying to break that orphan spirit off of us. And I feel like there's, um, there's such, there's such a, a spirit of entitlement over our globe. I was going to say in America, but it's, it's everywhere I go. And, you know, um, in Luke 15 is the story of the two, uh, prodigal son. Actually, it's called the story of the two sons. Um, and verse 11. Verse 10 says, in the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, a man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey in a distant country. And there he squandered his inheritance with loose living. And, you know, the rest of that story, there was a famine. He ends up at the pig farm. But it's interesting because he comes to his father and he says, listen, I want you to give me what's mine. I want you to give me, you'll notice the word inheritance isn't used here. He says, I, I want you to give me, I want you to give me this state that falls to me. And, and the father gives him money and he leaves with money and he squanders his inheritance. And I feel like part of that, the part of the, the, the challenge with the orphan spirit is that People, have, there's a spirit of entitlement on people, and I think it masquerades what something, I think the spirit of, of entitlement masquerades as the spirit of inheritance. Are you following me? But an orphan spirit feels like it's entitled to something. And I, I really feel like that whole thing needs to be broken, and it's, it's manifesting in our government, it's manifesting in the way that people feel like government should take care of them. I, and I, I think that, that that thing needs to be broken. And, you know, here's the challenge. Um, I was talking to somebody in a country, uh, this is probably a while back, and I was telling them she was from Romania, and I said, oh, I've been to Romania. And she said, yeah, and she, she was talking about, you know, communism. And I said, you know, I was talking to a taxi driver when we were coming out of Romania, and I, I asked him, I said, I said, are you, I said, you know, you were here during the time when, when the communists were here. And he said, yes, I was, and in very broken English, I said, so, I said, do you, how much, I said, do you like it a lot better since, since you're out of communism? He says, oh no, I liked communism. 
I said, you like communism? I thought, you know, he spoke really broken English, so it was hard to understand. I said, are you saying that when you were under communism that you liked it better? He said, uh, oh, yes. I said, why did you like it better? He says, now I have to find my own job and have to take care of myself. And so I was interacting with this, uh, this government leader that has come out of Romania. She's been out of Romania for a lot of years, but she was born and raised there and raised under communism. And she said to me, and I said, you know, the people, I said, the people there like communism more than they like uh, democracy. And she said, no, you misunderstood. She said, you have to understand that when you take away an orphanage, but you don't give them fathers, you haven't done anything to provide for them. So the goal isn't to get rid of orphanages. The goal is to begin family. (laughs) Because those orphanages are there because there is no family. And when you take away, when you take away communism, but you don't provide an ecosystem where people can make a living, it's not just that they have to take ownership of their life, it's that there's no way for them to actually make a living, and everybody in these, in these countries, you know, if you go to Russia and Romania, and I just got out of Latvia, and these countries that have come out of communism, the struggle is, is that no one's ever taught them how to take care of themselves. And so the system has taken care of them. Are you, are you following me? The system is taking care of them, and so the, and so all of a sudden the orphanage goes away, and we're like, "All right, you're free." But the problem is, is there's no daddies, there's no family, there's no place to go, there's no one to take care of you. So if there's no one to take care of you, you long for the orphanage. And she started explaining to me, she's a very intelligent woman who works in government. She started explaining to me. She said, "No, you don't understand. In Romania, what happened is metaphorically, we got rid of this global orphanage, but we didn't give people a family." There is no ecosystem. Like, we didn't move them into something new. We just took away the old. And so the man isn't saying he loves communism. He's saying he loved it when, 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 he, was actually, when he can actually make a living. Because now there's so, much, there's so much poverty because nobody takes care of them. And so I feel like, you know, in Matthew 28, the famous uh, Great Commission where Jesus said, um, therefore, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I've taught you. Make sure I got this. Um, verse 16, I love this part. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. That sounds like church, doesn't it? And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, because I have authority, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so here's the Great Commission. The Great Commission... Obviously, we need to make disciples in nation, but the great commission is to make disciples of nations, is to become fathers, mothers, if you will, to nations, and to teach them what the Lord has taught us, to teach, to, to, create, to create ecosystems, kingdom ecosystems. Like, what does it look like when the kingdom is superimposed over a city? What does it look like? I began to, you know, I began to just stay awake at night just thinking about, like, you know, we've been praying this prayer for years. Matthew 6, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And people began to ask me questions. When I was in Lafia, they said to me, what does it look like when the kingdom comes? I said, well, they heal the sick, they raise the dead, they cast out demons. They're like, okay, but after that, what does it look like? Like, what does it look like? Like, what does it look like when the kingdom comes? What would it, what would it actually look like if the kingdom came in, at Costco? Well, well, the sick would be healed, the lame would walk, and the blind would see. Okay, after that, what would it look like when the sick are healed, the blind, the blind, the blind, that's when a person is blind and lame. Those are the blame. What does it look like when the kingdom comes? When, when actually, like, like, how do you take people, how do you take a nation into an experience that you don't know what it looks like, you can't articulate? So sometimes I think, that, you know, we're getting to this place where, you know, if, um, if somebody came to us, like we're building a building. We, we, we are. We're building a building. We sat with the architect. And the architect says, well, what does it look like? Like, what do you think it should look like? And we're like, hmm, well, it needs to hold this many people. Awesome. What does it look like? Well, and we began to, we began to tell the architect all the things we want to do with the building. And the architect comes and says, does it look like this? And we're not, it doesn't look like that. We don't like that. (laughs) Well, what does it look like? (laughs) And how many understand that we're moving beyond a a mission where we're talking about the purposes and we're going to vision like, what does it actually look like when the kingdom is superimposed over society? How do we actually father society? Like, what does it look like? When we teach nations and we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I like, I think this is the only place where, where they're, where they're commanded to baptize them into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everywhere else they baptize them in Jesus' name. I, I'm not making a theological statement. I just love the fact that Jesus talked about the, the three dimensions of God. That nations need to be baptized in all the dimensions of God. Into the Father, into the Son, and into the Holy Spirit. They need to be nations need to be baptized in all dimensions of God. And (laughs) are are you following me? And so um, I just began to think about that. That it's not good enough to to get rid of the orphan spirit. We need the spirit of fatherhood, and that and out of that we need to be able to teach. People, what Jesus, we need to teach nations what Jesus taught us. I started thinking like, Jesus is like, okay, I want you to make disciples of nations. Like, okay, that's good. How? how? Well, teach them what I commanded you. And then baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm like, okay, how do you baptize a nation? And what did you teach us that a nation would want to know? And I, I just started asking myself that. I remember, you know, when I first met Bill and Benny, and I've told this story so many times, but obviously I came out of a completely dysfunctional home, and people laugh, and we go places, and I introduce my wife, and I say, this is my wife. I met her when she was 12. We got engaged when she was 13. And people laugh. <laughs> I'm like, oh, we did. <laughs> Kathy had a ring when she was 13. Now, that sounds kind of like, I know, there's a mixed response. My response is, it tells you how dysfunctional our families were. 
My daughter, I wouldn't let my daughter cross the street with another guy at 13. <laughs> like, that's not a testimony. The testimony is that we stayed together all these years, but that is not the testimony. That's a death testimony of a dysfunctional family that lets their kids hang out together and get engaged when they're 13 and 15. It's a miracle that God took, you know, as Bill would say, God can win with any hand. And it's amazing he won with that one. I would not allow any of my kids or teach that to any of our students. Or if one, anyone ever came to me and said, I'm 13 and I want to get married. I'm like, dude, get a life. You're 13. You just hit puberty. You don't even know what love is. So, you know, when we met Bill and Benny, I mean, we, we came from dysfunctional families. You know, Kathy's family was dysfunctional in a different way. You've heard, you know, I've written books about my family. My family's, <laughs> my family's infamous. <laughs> when I wrote my first book, The Supernatural Ways of Royalty, I, I had to let my mom read it to my stepfather and get permission. And he's like, I did that, so go ahead and write, go ahead and leave it in there. And I, I got so convicted, I took two-thirds of it out. I just left a few lines in there, just so we could have a relationship. <laughs> but, you know, when we met Bill and Benny, I mean, we didn't, we met, I think, we were married about, probably, let's see, we've been together 32 years. So we, we met after, uh, we were married three years when we met Bill and Benny. And we had, you know, we started having kids at the same age, and so we're hanging out together all the time, and, you know, obviously... Bill was teaching on Sundays and all that, but we were learning from watching the way that they interacted with each other and interacted with their children. They were a living message to us. And I've shared this so many times, but we would go to bed at night after we go, we go home from their house or they'd leave our house because we were together a lot in the first 10, 12 years. And uh, there's not a lot to do in Weaverville. <laughs> Unless you like to hunt or fish and Bill likes to do that. I don't, so you can imagine... So we lay, Kathy and I would lay in bed at night after we'd come home from Bill and Benny's house, especially the first 10 years, and we would talk about the way they interacted, whether we liked it or not. <laughs> it was kind of all new to us because, you know, that's not the way we were raised. So, um, and we learned, and then, then uh, as our kids, they had three kids, we had three kids, and our, our kids all dated at one time, not at the same time, but I'm like, I'm going to be a Johnson. <laughs> I even tried to prophesy it into him. You shall be. They're all good friends now, but I didn't get into the family that way. But uh, my son, Jason, he was like so, I mean, he, he, he understood how much we imitated in a good way the Johnsons. And he would say to me, can I go to such such place? And I'd say, uh, no, you can't go because, well, Brian gets to go. I'd say, listen, I am your dad. Bill is Brian's dad. Okay? Okay. Okay, you can go. <laughs> Bill let Brian go. It must be okay. <laughs> so, we're, you know, we're learning... First of all, we're learning how to do family ourselves. How many of you are in that mode? I mean, aren't we, aren't we learning how to do family ourselves? And when, you know, when, when we really have come, most of us, and I'm not just saying the ones of us that came out of completely dysfunctional homes. I'm saying that religion is a global orphanage. 
where I'm not sure we learn to do family. We learn to do control. And I feel like that we're either like, we're either like the, the younger son who, hey, give me what's mine. There's a spirit of entitlement on me. It's like, someone take care of me. Listen, you owe me, Dad. I'll take what's mine and I'm out of here. Or we're like the older son who doesn't even know he has an inheritance. And he's mad because the boy got anything. And if you notice, it says that the father, when the younger son asked for the inheritance, actually didn't ask for inheritance, when he asked for part of his estate, he says, give me the estate that falls to me. It says that the father divided the inheritance between both of the boys. And for some reason, the older son didn't even realize that when he gave the younger son his portion, he gave the older son his portion. And the younger son, the older son's mad when the younger son comes home. He's like, you never gave me anything. He's like, listen, stupid. I get, no, listen, all that I have is yours. And, and, do you understand that both of those are, the, are a great display of the orphan spirit? Like, one doesn't think it has anything, and the other's jealous of anybody who does. One thinks that he's entitled to everything, and the other one thinks that he never gets anything. And, and that, that whole thing needs to be broken off of us so that we have a wealth kind of mentality, and we actually, first of all, have to know what Jesus taught us personally. Like, we have to have a personal breakthrough so that we can be a corporate covering. Because what, what, what doesn't work is when you have orphans become kings, metaphorically speaking. They become presidents, prime ministers. They become, they become uh, you know, mayors. They become governors. When, and they have the orphan spirit on them. Listen, I'm not, please, I'm not talking about anybody in particular. I'm just talking about that that's, that's, that spirit's over the globe. So when, when an orphan becomes a king, he creates those the orphanage kind of mentality. It's not because they're evil. It's just they don't know any other way. If we wouldn't have met Bill and Benny and, and also uh, Bill Derryberry and Judy Derryberry and Charlie and Harpers, the Harpers and some of those, if we wouldn't have met those folks, we wouldn't have known anything about raising kids. We would have taken what we've learned from our parents, which was completely dysfunctional, and did our and did and we would have done our best to polish it and repeat it. No, I'm telling you the truth. I mean, people don't know. And so people that, that have that orphan mentality, they, they become, you know, city leaders, state leaders, governors, leaders of countries. And I'm telling you, we're getting to meet some of these people. And I'm like, these people can't even run their own household. What the heck are they doing? And people are like, those people are evil. I'm like, they're not evil, they're dysfunctional. There's a big difference between having an evil heart and being completely dysfunctional. And you think that people at the top ought to know, but they don't know. And they create, you know, elder brothers create hierarchies. I want to read you this definition. I like this. I got a Wikipedia dictionary. (laughs) Hierarchies come from a pecking order. Listen to this. It's a basic, a pecking order is a basic concept in social stratification and social hierarchy that it's the counterpart and uh, that has its counterpart in other animal species as well, including humans. Still, the term pecking order is often used, uh, synonymously as well because the pecking order was the fir- was first studied was the first studied example of social hierarchy among animals the basic concept behind the establishment of a pecking order among for example chickens is that it is necessary um, 
that is that it is necessary to determine who's the top chicken, the bottom chicken, and all the rest or all the rest of the chickens fit in. Isn't it interesting that the idea of pecking order first came from chickens? <laughs> As it usually grows out of insecurity with our place with the Father. And so we're moving from this from this hierarchy, which is pecking orders. Who's the top chicken? Whoever's the most gifted person is the top chicken. Are you with me? And Jesus talked about that in, in the book of Luke. He said, um, Luke 22, he said to, to, the, to the disciples, the kings and the Gentiles lorded over you. And those who have authority over you are called benefactors. But the kingdom is not like this. Let the greatest among you be the servant of all. And so Jesus says, listen, listen, I want you to be great leaders, but not like those guys. Those guys have what's called a benefactor. What's a benefactor? It's like it, all, the, all the elements benefit one factor, one person. In other words, the top chicken. Who's the top chicken? Well, whoever can peck the hardest is the top chicken. And what happens is, is that we respect people who are the most gifted. And what happens when we, when we put people who are the most gifted, the most gifted person becomes the leader? Anybody who is more gifted that comes along gets pecked, gets sabotaged. The whole culture is developed around a pecking order. And people are picked by the strength of their peck. Are you with me? And what I'm getting at is that when you have a gift-based culture, that's, that's caused from an orphan spirit, and basically it's a gang mentality. <laughs> don't, even, don't even go there. And the Lord wants us to move from a hierarchy to an hierarchy. We're heirs of Christ Jesus. We're called as sons and daughters of the king. Listen, we don't lead because we're the most gifted, we're the most qualified, we're the best at something. We lead because the Father chose us. And if the Father chose you, you have to understand this. See, in a, <laughs> Jesus said this someplace in the Bible. <laughs> Trust me, He did. He said, I no longer leave, leave you as orphans. And then Romans 8 says that we're not any longer under fear. This is a great verse. I memorized it. (laughs) For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. For we have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but we've received the spirit of adoption as sons, and we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. That's a good word. In other words, we're going from hierarchies that that are dependent on who is the top dog, who's the... Who is this top chicken? Who is the strongest? Who is the most gifted? And we're saying, listen, no, no. We're heirs of Christ Jesus. We are adopted sons. The Father came and He chose us specifically. He chose you. And Paul makes this great case. He's like, you know, he talks about his credentials. And he's talking about these, the Corinthians have these other people who have moved in among them and are trying to say, we're your apostles. So Paul through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians saying, 
Listen, when I, like 1 Corinthians 4, he says to them, when I come there, I'm not going to check out their words, but their power. And then in 2 Corinthians, he's like, listen, they say they're apostles. Let me give you my credentials. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. And he starts talking about all of his troubles instead of his credentials. Instead of saying, listen, I graduated from the top of the class. I'm always, listen, he says, I, it was by the grace of God that he chose me the least. Actually, he says this, the greatest of all sinners. And the point that he's making is, is that he says, I was not chosen by the agency of, of man, but by the agency of God. What's he saying? And I have become your father, says the Corinthians. I may not be a father to any or everybody, but I am to you. What is the qualification of fatherhood? Well, the first qualification is you have to know that you were chose. That your son, your daughters, they might go to Harvard, they might go to Princeton, you might not have an education. But guess what? It doesn't matter how educated they are, how, how famous they become, you're still their father, you're still their mother. Because you didn't get this position because you earned it by some qualification. You got it because God chose you. God put you there. And the advantage to that is if you have a call-based society, that you actually measure your success by how many people outgrow you. That's why apostles and prophets are called the foundation, not the roof. It doesn't say the apostles and prophets are the roof of the church. It says, no, they're the foundation of the church. People step on us to get higher. You understand in the right way. They, they, they use our platform as a foundation to grow something bigger. And their success, it's, our success is actually measured by their success. That's how our fathers and mothers measure success. We look at our sons and daughters and we're like, go, outgrow us, do better than us. Jesus said it this way. Listen, he was called what in, in Isaiah 9, he's called the eternal father. And he shall be called eternal father. Wonderful counselor, eternal father. And what did he say? Greater work shall you do when I go to be with the father. Listen, I want a legacy. Listen, you know, let me understand. Let me get you to understand this. Listen, I know you don't want me to go, but you don't understand. If I'm going to have a legacy, when I get out of here, you guys are going to do greater works than I ever did. That is such a sign of fatherhood that not only am I not insecure, I am secure that you're going to do greater works than I do. I have set you up to succeed. So, so we need to, one, break the spirit of entitlement. Listen, that, that thing that says, you owe me something. It's like, no, 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 listen, take ownership of something. Be a good steward of, of what isn't yours. How do you get your own? You become a really good steward of someone else's stuff. All through the Bible, how many parables are about, hey, the master gave talents, the master gave minus, the, the master left the vineyard. I mean, it's, it's all about people who took care of someone else's stuff. And when they took care of something that was someone else's, they came back, then they got something that was their own. Are you with me? It's like when you get to be really good at managing someone else's stuff, then you get to be the owner of something that's yours. That is the spirit of fatherhood. A really wise, I was talking to a really wealthy man. This is probably about 10 years ago. We were flying along, and uh, he, he's a multimillionaire. He's not a billionaire, but he's a multimillionaire. And we were interacting, and you know, I said, one of my goals is to leave an inheritance for my children's children. 
And I would like some of that to be money. I'd like some of that to be money. And we were interacting. He's got three children and he's, you know, he's getting up there in age and he was, you know, he's already set up a foundation and, and, uh, so he, he confided in me. He was telling me about the fact that he's concerned about giving his sons, his sons and daughter money before they actually have wisdom. And he said, my concern isn't giving them stuff. My concern is giving them stuff that would actually entitle them to not have to work. And, and he said, what I really want to give them is I want to give them the ability to make wealth, not just money. See, people need a hand up, not a handout. I am. Um, my son, my oldest son, Eddie, is adopted and came out of a very bad situation. His, his mother's a drug addict. He's had several children from different uh, men, been married one time that I know of. His, uh, father's, um, his father's a drug addict. They split up when he was little. And he has some of the most horrible stories. I don't really feel the freedom to tell those stories. I started to tell them in the book and took them out. But you can just imagine what it's like to live in a drug home where anything that can be sold, food, toys, anything that can be sold, gets sold for drugs. So you go literally, you may go days without food. When I met him and went to get permission, I could, the, the judge, we went to see the judge because we wanted to get legal custody of him, first of all. And the judge says, well, there's two ways to do this. You can go to court, and the judge says, I know their family, small town. I know their family. I know his mother. I know his father. I know you'll win in court. They don't have the money to even fight you. Or you can take this paper and you can get them both to sign it. If they sign it, you have full custody. I'm like, well, that sounds like a lot better deal. We pull up to mom's house. He's 15. I mean, my son's 15 at the time. We pull up at his house, and we walk up the stairs to this really crummy, crummy apartment. And um, there's no lights on. I said, Eddie, there's no lights on. Your mother must not be here. He goes, oh, no, no. We haven't had electricity in months. No electricity, no water. You imagine what that means. No flushing toilets. I walk in there, and she's huddled in the corner, freezing. It's wintertime. Blankets over her, coming off, probably coming off. I don't know. Like, I don't know what she was doing, really. I can only imagine. So, and then Dad, we, so he, she signs. She's completely out of it. She just says, what are you doing? I said, I want, want custody of your son. She said, fine, give me the paper and sign it. And there's no, no conversation at all. And went to Dad's house, and Dad's got motorcycles outside, and there's marijuana smoke coming from the house and doors wide open. We get, we go inside and people are laying all over and, you know, you can, you can just imagine the scene. And I walk in and his father says, what do you want? What do you want? I'm scared to death. You know, there's always, <laughs> one thing I want is to get out of here in one piece. That's what I like right now. You know, I'm thinking my heart is just, you know, you've ever had that when your heart's just pounding out of your chest and you're trying to form words? Yeah, it's scary, you know. I mean, the only solace I had is that he was with me. So I said, I, I want your son. I want to adopt your son. He said, what for? I said, I think he needs a real father. How about you? 
And he looked at me and he goes, what do you want? He says to Eddie, Eddie says, I, I want him to be my dad. He says, fine, give me the paper. And he scribbled his name on there and threw it at me. That was the best day of Eddie's his life. But when you're raised like that, it's amazing what you get taught. I mean, no one sits you down and says, hey, this is how orphans live. Okay, you're an orphan, act like this. No one teaches you that. You just learn to survive when no one else is taking care of you. And so for the first year, probably at least a year, the first night was really, really sad. So we're all excited because Eddie's with us and we made the decision as a family. We had three other kids and, you know, we're just excited. We're, he's kind of been coming over now and then. And so we sit down for our very first meal and I'll never forget as long as I live. We're eating dinner. Of course, there's plenty, you know. You can tell my wife cooks, man. <laughs> she can cook for an army. <laughs> there's plenty of food. So, you know, there's food on the table, and when the food gets about, I don't know, you know, everyone's kind of talking and eating, and, you know, we're laughing, and we're having a good time. And when the food gets about, oh, maybe it's half gone or maybe a little bit more than that, pretty soon I noticed that Eddie's taking helpings, putting them on his plate, and, and then, you know, we're kind of like, we're trying not to pay too much attention to him, but, but I noticed he's taking lots of napkins, and it takes about two or three minutes to figure this out because this kid's good. And he's ditching food in the napkins and then taking it upstairs and hiding it in his room. <laughs> Pretty tough stuff. Kathy goes up to clean the room and she finds he's got food ditched all over the room. Ditched in different places in case anyone finds the hiding place. Dude, this kid can survive. And we did that for a year. We let him do that for a year. And finally one day, I'll never forget, we're coming home. We went to Weirville. We're coming home. And I said, hey, dude, now he's 16. I said, uh, he's like, yeah. I said, you're not an orphan anymore. He said, yeah, I know. I said, no, you don't know. No, you don't know. He said, yeah, I know. I said, no, you don't know. How do you know I don't know? <laughs> you want me to tell you? You're storing food, dude. Everything you have is locked up or hidden. He's like, uh. And so it was a conversation with lots of tears. And we began to say, I began to say, listen, I know you don't. This is a new way of thinking. There's going to always be enough. Listen, you moved into the king's palace. You know, I'm not, you understand. I'm trying to say, I'm talking to my son. I'm trying to use, get him to understand, like, Listen, you're not in prison anymore. You're in the king's palace. There's more than enough food. Always, listen, if, if all the food's gone and you want more, mom will cook you more. Yeah, I understand. And it was another a couple years of just like, hey, that's that thing. I said, I need permission to talk to you when you're doing that thing without you getting mad. Because if you try to say anything, that's why I waited a year, he would get and just get worse. I'm like, okay, that's not good. So, you know, let's get a picture of what you're doing and what it looks like to live in the palace, okay? Okay, so you need your thinking to change. So you're in the palace, but the palace isn't in you. Okay, I get it. Okay, so I need permission that when you act like a pauper, that I can tell you in a nice way, like, that's not okay. That's not okay. Okay, you're doing that thing again. That's not okay. See, the struggle is, is that most of us grew up like that. 
when something gets when something gets funded, we think that took away from somebody else. If somebody, if you build a nice building, it's like, well, then the poor people didn't get taken care of. And some of you are just looking at me like, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. The Father has enough. The problem in the world is not money. The problem in Africa is not money. I don't mean people that, like Tracy don't need money. I'm saying that is not the main issue. Wealth is not primarily about money. It's about a way of thinking. I wrote down some things. This is just actually one night. The truth is I woke up one night and I had this this question in mind. What does it look like when the kingdom comes? And I had already used all my answers on my friend. What does it look like when the kingdom comes? The sick are healed, the lame walk, blind see. After that, I don't know. Never thought about it after that. I mean, if the sick healed, blame, blame the blind see. <laughs> and the lame walk. I mean, what else is there? I mean, Jesus healed the sick, raised the dead. I mean, what else is there? She's like, okay, after that. You know, I don't know. So I started thinking, like, what does it look like? And so then I started thinking about Jesus said, teach them what I taught you. All right. What did you teach me that I could teach a nation? Are you, are, am I making any sense? I can't tell if I am tonight or not. What, what did you teach me? Like, I could teach a father. I, I really could teach a father now. I, I could teach a father how to be a father. Like, I've, I've done well and I've made mistakes and I know the difference. And, you know, if somebody came and said, my son's doing this and this, I mean, I may not have the exact answer, but you know what I mean. Like, I'm a good father. I could teach a father. I don't live in insecurity. I don't live in Orphanville. I can teach a father how to be a father. Are, are you following me? I'm not being arrogant. I'm not saying I'm a perfect father. I'm just saying I know how to raise a family. And how many of you understand you can teach your kids all the right things, and when they get old, they can do something else? When they have a free will, they can wander off, but... Proverbs guarantees us they'll come back. So you understand what I'm saying. So, um, so I'm thinking, okay, so what did you teach me that I could teach a nation? Because my friends are like, teach a nation. We want you to teach our nation how to be a kingdom nation. I'm like, okay, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if that's going to work. Like, So I'm thinking about, what did Jesus teach me that I could actually teach nations? No, no, I read Isaiah 60. How many of you like Isaiah 60? Arise and shine, for your light has come. Behold, deep darkness covers the earth, deep darkness the people. But the Lord will rise upon you. I love that. Kings will come to the brightness of your rising. I love that. Deeper into it, it says, and kings are leading the procession. They're bringing their wealth with them. I'm like, that's awesome. Like, kings are paying for something. It probably has to do with this discipling nations thing. Like, they're probably so desperate because it's deep darkness that they're like, hey, there's light over there. You know, light. It's got to be a metaphor. It isn't like, hey, the church glows. It's like things work for them and it doesn't for us. And so we need to come to the revelation, you know, the light, like revelation, like the lights are turned on over there. Those guys seem to know how to do family. 
They seem to know how to do government. They seem to know how to do business. Like, let's go over there and listen, let's, and we know we have to pay for it. Are you following me? So I'm like, and I love this. It says, deep darkness covers the earth, deep darkness of the people, but then the Lord will rise upon you. I love that because to me it kind of fits with Acts 2.17 when it says, uh, 18.19, when it says um, that the sun turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord. It's, <laughs> I kind of like that, don't you? It's like the, the Lord rises on us. When the sun turned dark and the moon turned to blood. So I couldn't figure out any other way to do it. And they're like, okay, we're going to, you're the only thing shining. Are you following me at all? So I wrote down some stuff and I just, it, I got at three o'clock in the morning. I just got up and I just wrote down some stuff that obviously, you know, I mean, I don't think three pages are going to disciple a nation, but I'm just going to read you some ideas that I have, like some of the things Jesus taught us that I think that as fathers and mothers, that we're going to teach countries, cities, states, if you will. And uh, I'm a little bit nervous about reading it to you, but here it goes. Okay. The first thing I thought of, and I just wrote at the top of the page, when the kingdom comes, when the kingdom comes, what does it look like? It's my friend's question. What does it look like? She kept saying, what does it look like? And so I, I wrote this. Worldly societies are based on punishment. For example, the police are not charged with identifying good drivers and rewarding them. On the contrary, they give tickets out to people who speed for breaking the law. How many understand that our whole society is based on punishment? When you see, listen, you're driving along and you see a police officer in your rearview mirror suddenly. What do you do? <laughs> you, you, you may not slow down, but you at least what? You check. There's a few of you that don't. You're like, I never do anything wrong. I'm a perfect driver. I'm like, hey, glad you're behind me. I, mean, I look every time I look at my speedometer like, OK, Kathy always said, well, just yesterday we're, I'm driving. She goes, there's a cop over there. I'm like, am I doing something wrong? And it's just natural to point them out like there's one there. And there's one over there. Why? Because we know that they're not there to hand out trophies for your driving. They're there to punish you when you do something wrong. And when you do it right, no one does anything for you. No, I just want you to think through this. It's like we are in in a culture of punishment. But when Jesus returns, he will bring his reward with him. Are you with me? So so I want you to just get this. Like, like this is not just we have police officers. This is a culture where people expect when the IRS calls you, not like, hey, you overpaid your taxes. I mean, you get a letter from the IRS that says, we want to see you. How many of you, how many of you are like, I think they probably overpaid. That's why they called me. <laughs> they don't hire the IRS auditors to give you money. Yes, sometimes they give it to you, but that's not their goal. I mean, auditor is paid to find something wrong, not something right. I've been audited a couple of times over the years when we had our businesses. I never came in and said, wow, you know what? Give us all the places where you think you, that you paid too much. I mean, the guy was auditing our Coke machine. Seriously. He's like, how much money came from this Coke machine? I don't know. Did you declare it? <laughs> I want the Coke machine. Well, what does the Coke machine make? I don't know. I probably drank that many Cokes. I think couldn't have made a... I mean, my, my employees steal those Cokes. <laughs> I'm serious. The lady's like, um... Keep track of that Coke. It's in the back. I mean, 
employees steal more Cokes than we ever paid for. <laughs> Are you following my thinking? I'm saying our, our, the structure of our government is based on punishment. <laughs> That's why I think why we have prophetic people wanting to judge and punish people when they do something wrong. It's all part of the world mindset. Like, okay, someone did something wrong. Somebody's got to die for that. Someone's got to at least get hurt. It's not discipline. I understand discipline. Discipline says you're way too awesome to be acting like that. Punishment said, I'm going to get you for doing that wrong. Listen, you deserve, listen, you're going to get it now. Listen, you disturb my television time. Okay? Interrupted the game. You're getting it. Punishment isn't for your benefit. It's for my anger. So maybe you feel better that you actually got what was coming to you. Okay. I'm starting over. Worldly societies are based on punishment. For example, the police are not charged with identifying good drivers and rewarding them. On the contrary, they give tickets out to people who speed or break the law. The kingdom of God has a completely different core value system. God rewards people who work hard, create positive influence in society, and are faithful. For example, the guy in the Bible who gets five talents, it's Matthew 25, by the way. The guy in the Bible who gets, uh, guy in the Bible who get, who got five talents and made five more was rewarded with an extra talent that was buried by the fearful servant. Think about that. Guy had five, he, he had five talents. He made five more. Jesus is like, that's awesome. He made five talents out of his one. Jesus gave him a talent, made five. Jesus goes, that's awesome. You can have five more. Gets to the guy that had one and made three. Jesus is like, that's awesome. You can have three more. And then he gets to the guy who had one and buried it. Guy goes, listen, I knew things were tough. This is definitely the orphan mentality. I don't know how to create wealth. And I know that when you get back, you're going to be really mad if I spent your stuff. So I'm fearful. And what I'm going to do when I'm fearful is nothing. Okay, I'm going to bury this thing to make sure that you get what's yours. And Jesus all listen, listen. And, you know, he says some not too good stuff to the guy who buried it. But who does he give the talent to? He gives it to the guy who already has ten. Like he had one, made five. Jesus gave him five more, takes it away from the guy who had one, and gives it to who? The guy who had ten. And then he says this, To he who has, more shall be given. That's a governmental structure. Do I have to go on? I will. I'll just read you this. Therefore, when the kingdom comes in a city, business people and citizens who create jobs and possibly benefit society should be rewarded for their efforts, not taxed more heavily than people who have chosen not to take a risk. What does it look like when the kingdom comes? Well, take the things that Jesus taught us. What did he teach us? Listen, I reward people who are faithful and people who take risks. That's who I reward. I reward people who take risks and who are faithful. So what should you do? If you develop a government that rewards people who are faithful and take risks, guess what they do? They create jobs and better jobs. Raises and bonuses. Who? The people who are already too rich that you shouldn't get the one. The way we think of That person shouldn't get the one. They already have more than they should. Listen, they got that because they were faithful and they took a risk. And now you want to tax the crap out of them because you're jealous because you're the one with the one who didn't do anything with yours. I'm trying to tell you, like, Jesus taught us this, and we can teach nations this. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to give you a couple more, and we'll be done. Here's the next one. Dealing with poverty. 
Someone said, if you need money, don't ask for money. Ask why you need money. Poverty is not the absence of finances, but the presence of a dysfunctional, of dysfunctional mindsets that create ecosystems in which prosperity is sabotaged or resisted. Therefore, when the kingdom comes in a city, the poor must be given a hand up, not a hand out. It's imperative that we do not create systems that encourage core values that create generational uh, systemic poverty. We must give the poor fish, so to speak, while we teach them to fish. There will always be people among us who will never be able to provide for themselves because of various handicaps, and we must take care of the poor. Proverbs says, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. But when we create ecosystems that reward laziness, irresponsibility, or selfishness, we are rewarding the very attributes that perpetuate poverty. Are you? Jesus taught us that. Jesus taught us that hard work is part of the kingdom. We were created for good works in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about, and Bill, you know, I think made it really clear today. I'm not talking about working for identity. I'm talking about working from identity. I'm not talking about working so I can have favor with God or favor with man. I'm talking about using my gift because I'm responsible. Okay. Can I do a couple more? I don't know. Feels long. Okay. Um, the role of government. When the kingdom comes in a city, when the kingdom comes in, a, in city government, when I think I probably wrote this wrong. When the kingdom comes in a city government, I'm sorry. When the kingdom comes, a city government promotes the family and doesn't take the place of it. For example, our social security system should reward families that take care of their own elderly. In this way, in the latter years of life, they are not just financed. Older people are not just financed. They are cared for. But when the responsibility of the elderly is given away to governmental agencies, the funds the family needs to care for the elderly are siphoned off to an impersonal structure and love is undermined. I'll just leave that alone. <clears throat> Dealing with uh, negative ecosystems. I, I'm, I'm getting close. When the kingdom comes in a city, the root causes of negative ecosystems are dealt with rather than creating symptomatic cures that become tomorrow's problems. Gangs are an example of the desecration of the family unit where young men and women are hungry for bonding and camaraderie that is absent in latchkey kids and fatherless families. They're finding these values in front, they're finding these, the vert, start over. They're finding these virtues of friendship, loyalty, protection, and identity in gangs. Consequently, packs are taking the place of families. Therefore, when a society, when a society's only course of action is to punish gang members, Instead of helping to rebuild families, gang members learn the wrong core values about authority, which ultimately serves to facilitate a dysfunctional ecosystem that distances itself from fathers and widens the generation gap. In other words, gangs are a symptom, not the problem. If you don't have a family, you figure out how to get what you get from a family from other people, whether it's functional or dysfunctional. Okay, we'll do a couple more. Civil rights. One of the signs of that the kingdom is at work in a city is that people are, are valued equally, no matter their gender, ethnic origin, or social class. Like Jesus, the church must champion women and be their greatest encourager and defender. Religion oppresses, devalues, and disempowers people in the name of God. 
but the kingdom empowers people and encourages them to dream, think, and create. You know, Jesus was the greatest encourager of women. It's amazing. You, you read about the women that he had around him, and when you understand the culture, the cultural core values in which Jesus empowered women, it's amazing. It was absolutely counterculture to even speak to a woman. You know who funded most of Jesus' ministry? Rich women. Look, Go check it out. Rich women funded almost all of Jesus' ministry. Just a thought. I'm married one. <laughs> she looked rich compared to where I came from. <laughs> okay, uh, two more. Uh, kingdom education systems. An educational system under the influence of the kingdom values cre- creativity, ingenuity, and character. For example, life skills, virtues, and values, and character development must be implemented alongside of history, math, and science. The entire environment of a kingdom school system must become a culture of learning and growing. In other words, learning must not start over. In other words, learning must transcend the classroom and become a multidimensional experience where life on the campus is a discipling process. Education itself must be redefined so that the recounting of facts is not the main goal of learning. Instead, the ability to think, reason, and make decisions based on virtues, values, and stances is enhanced in a kingdom educational system. School systems must transform from teaching to training centers. Innovative methods of training and equipping students must be embraced, especially for individuals who don't learn primarily through sitting on a seat for six hours while listening to someone lecture. You know, our educational system in the early days used to teach people character, virtues, and values, and not just history, math, and science. Okay, one more and then we'll done. Sexuality. When the kingdom comes in a city, a healthy sexual society is established. Shame is removed from sex and passion is valued um, along with sacrifice. People are taught how to manage their sexual appetites and not get rid of them. Women are no longer viewed as objects but embraced as individuals that are to be adored, protected, and loved. Children are embraced and valued as the fruit of a lifetime covenant, not as the burden or mistake brought about by actions of virtuous partners who insist on other people bearing the scars of their poor choices. Virgins are valued in honors as victors, not viewed as prudes. Holy affection is the fruit of a healthy sexual society where mothers and fathers can openly display appropriate love for people. The absence of real affection in our culture is causing people to look for love inside of sex instead of in families and amongst friends. This has resulted in the boundaries between sex and affection being skewed. Lust has been exchanged for love and sex for affection. But the Bible says, greet one another with the holy kiss. Healthy affection is one of the signs that the kingdom of God is affecting the values of our city. Okay, that's just to give you some ideas. Let's pray right now. Why don't you stand and... I'm just trying to give you some ideas after everyone's healed. Every blind person sees. Every lame person walks. Every disease is gone. And, and the dead people who want to come back are back. <laughs> I know we're a long ways from that. But how do you actually father a nation? And I understand that this is 
not even close to the last word. It's, it's the beginning. It's just all I was trying to do is get us to think. What did Jesus teach us that we can teach nations? And obviously, along with the supernatural, because how many of you know that we need a supernatural answers to the world's problems? I'll tell you, um, I've been with some political leaders uh, in recent days and business leaders, very, very wealthy and powerful people who um, several of them were atheists, several of them were Buddhists. You know what's funny? They all love the prophetic. All of them. All of them. I said to an atheist, this, this is a true story, I said to an atheist, can I prophesy over you? Remember, he don't believe there's God. This is not even rational question to ask an atheist. He said, yes, please do. I gave him a word. I said, this is a word from the Lord. He said, all right. I gave him a word. He said, that's a good word. I'll do that. I believe that. I mean, I know, I understand. Atheism isn't rational. It's not rational. It's just a good way to not be accountable to a God that you're going to see someday. But I'm not trying to be rude or dishonorable. I'm saying it's just not rational. But it's amazing that these people are hungry. I, I ministered to a whole bunch of Buddhists. New Age, I don't know, they brought all the stuff mixed up together. I don't know what they believe. I know they didn't eat meat. It's my first sign, deception. I mean, it was that deep. I mean, these people were like leaders of, uh, of, uh, you know, this all happened in the last couple of years. These are, these were leaders of, of nations. These are leaders of huge businesses. And, um, I'm like, I have a word for you. Can I give it to you? Oh, yeah. I'll give them the word. They're like, hey, here's my card. Here's my personal phone number. You get anything else from me? Call me. I'm telling you, I'm telling you that people, that really, most people, with the exception of some locations, hate religion. They're tired of religion. But they are very hungry for spiritual stuff, real spiritual stuff. And then, honestly, I, I'm convinced now, building a relationship with most of those people, they don't really care where it comes from, as long as it's real. They want to know it's real. And um, we had them jumping in the boat. Like, what do I? <laughs> One person asked, the, I better not, uh, it would be too defining, but they were jumping in the boat. <laughs> jumping in the boat. Like, what do I have to do to have the relationship with this Jesus? One person says, do I have to read the Bible to have a relationship with God? I said, no. Of course, some of my Christian friends are like, I said, Abraham knew God and he didn't have a Bible. And so I went, I said, no. He said, I don't? I said, no. But if you had a lover who wrote you letters, would you not open them? I mean, the question is, do, isn't, do I have to? The question is, do I get to? If you want to, like, say, do I have to? No. You don't have to read the Bible to get to know God. Muslims are meeting God in... That wasn't a feather. Muslims are meeting God. 
in visions and dreams. I mean, by literally by the tens of thousands. Bill, my tens of thousands. Tracy knows too. Tens of thousands of Muslims who have never read. A, they don't even have a Bible in their country. Most of them, at least in any, any of their any of their homes. And God's meeting them in dreams and talking to them about Jesus. And they're they're receiving Jesus as their Lord, Savior, and not just their prophet. Listen, uh, you understand that I listen. This is what I do for a living. So you, we teach the Bible for a living. Like, Someone wrote me like, you're devaluing the Bible. Like, why the heck would I do that? I've written books about this book. It's a bestseller. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm simply saying the question, I mean, his question is, do you have to read the Bible? He's asking an honest question. This is a Buddhist. Do I have to read the Bible to know God? No. Oh, good. But why wouldn't you want to? This God that you're trying to meet, like, he wrote you a letter. Why would you not want to? Does it make sense? that It's not logical that you wouldn't want to, but the answer to your question is no. Okay, yes. Feel better? So I'm going to pray for you right now, okay? Fathers of nations. Mothers of nations. From Abram to Abraham. Exalted Father to Father of a multitude. Come on, man. People out there starving for fathers, starving for family, starving for mothers. I'm telling you, everywhere you go, it's like, Daddy, Daddy, are you my daddy? Holy Spirit, we just pray. <laughs> Sorry. Holy Spirit, we just release right now. <laughs> Sorry, I haven't thought this out. We just release... The spirit of adoption over the body of Christ, that we would be an adoption agency to adopt the orphan spirit into the kingdom. Yeah, you said, whoever you forgive, I forgive. We have an adoption agency. We're the kingdom adoption agency, and we could adopt anyone who's an orphan. And Lord, we just pray for that right now, that we would have... We would come into the spirit of adoption. We would know that we're heirs of, of the kingdom, that, that we're heirs to the throne, that we're mothers and fathers, that we're a family. The, the guy who made everything, who isn't human, called himself daddy. It's a family affair. Lord, we just pray that you would release a family spirit over Bethel, over our movement, over our city, over the whole kingdom, over all Christianity, in every country, in every place, that you would break the curse over countries by uniting sons and fathers, by uniting daughters and fathers, mothers and fathers, daughters, sons, daughters and mothers, and the whole family thing. Sorry, Lord, I just don't want to leave anybody out. That you would break curses by restoring family. That you would teach us how to teach nations what it is you taught us. <laughs> In a way that makes nations healthy. Come on, this is right. I'm right about this. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know what it is you taught us that nations need to know. Just put your hands out like this right now. I'm sorry. I'm just 
We're just going to stay here for just another minute. We're laughing so much, you guys think I'm kidding. I am really not kidding. I'm happy. I want you to say this. I want you to say it first from your heart, though. I want you to say it from your heart. Say, Lord, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I've been called to be a father to nations. I received that call. I asked for wisdom. I asked for insight. I asked for understanding. I asked for favor. I asked for power to disciple nations, to make disciples of all nations. Lord, I ask you to remind me of what you taught me that makes healthy countries and create opportunities for me and my family to father nations, cities and states. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I, I really believe that we pray to prayer that it actually leaves activating something in us. I, I, I really want you to be ready for this. Like, I want you to, I want, I want us to move from hope to faith. I want us to actually expect that when we prayed that prayer, that something really did happen, and that the Lord is expecting you to actually be ready when he gives you revelation. Because I have a sense that it may be like you wake up in the middle of the night or you see something happen during the day and you're like, wait a second, that's a nation, that's a father nation principle right there that I need to take to heart and write it down and pray for more. You know, when the Lord gives you a little bit, use what you have and ask for more. It's okay to ask for more. And you understand what I'm saying? Like these little principles I share with you, obviously, you know, they can be argued from every side and have them all worked out. And what I'm doing with just a little bit that I got that night, that half hour, is I'm like, okay, that's good now. How does that work? And I need, you know, like each one of those is, deserves pages. I, I'm just talking about, it needs to be flushed out, as we would say in business world. We need to flush that out so it can actually make it work. And I'm just feeling like that the Holy Spirit is going to begin to give us uh, principles and revelation. And, and I, I've been thinking about this prayer. I think I shared it in staffing this morning. When Solomon became king, he prayed something like this to God. He said, I, you have given me this great nation, and yet I am like a child. You don't even know how to come in and go out. And, and something like that. And he said, and that's where he prays for wisdom. And I feel like we need, we need to think bigger. We need to stretch our thinking. We need to actually believe like he, it, it could actually happen to me. Like I could actually, the Lord could actually open the door for friendship with the mayor that, that would be, and I would be there to benefit her or him. I would be there to benefit and give wisdom and the Lord would give me prophetic, uh, uh, insight into problems and all kinds of discernment about things and I could teach them what the, what the Lord taught me. Are you following me? And so I want you to leave tonight with an expectation. Maybe, I, I don't know, I mean, just, I'm, I'm just do something practical. Like for me, I, I, I have a journal, so I take notes in a journal. And I, I'm, I don't have a great memory, so 
Um, I write down enough that it jogs my memory. Um, oh, yeah, okay, I remember that. You taught me that. I'm supposed to do that. So, I mean, do something that says, I'm going to steward this. Like, if you give me something, I'm going to write it down. I'm going to record it. I'm going to type it out. I'm going to do something so that I can build on it. Okay? Can we do that? All right. Bless you in Jesus' name.